passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Stephen Alby. All right, good, that'll stay there. All right, hope you guys grabbed your bottles of water. They're nice and comfy. I will do everything I can to speak loud enough to overcome the fans, but I am so grateful to be here with you guys. Being here with you on a video just isn't the same for me. I don't know why, um, but no, it's probably because I can't see your faces, I can't get to shake your guys' hands, I can't get to see you. Um, I miss you guys all the time. Uh, I, need, I know for a fact I need to come up here more, but it is an honor and a privilege to be with you as always and to preach. But first, um, I know we don't have flowers for you guys. I'm sorry. Um, something fell through. I was thinking carnations would have been awesome. But I just want to thank the dads in this um, stadium, congregation. I don't know what the word I'm going to use. But um, I just want to take a second just to applaud you guys. And being a dad is not easy. I don't know from experience but I know vicariously through seeing all of you, um, being the leader of your household is not easy. Being um, just a father, being a dad to your children is a noble cause. And it's a very noble thing and not many um, feel like they do it well, but I want you to hear that you are doing better than you think you are. And hopefully in this passage that we study here, um, you'll just be reminded even more so as we talk about the strife between two brothers. Um, I hope that the dads in here will, will see that no matter how great of a dad um, you are, you can't protect your children from all conflict, but you can be there for them. And I know it's not part of our passage, but it's amazing to see a little bit farther along um, when both of these brothers end up attending the funeral of their father together, despite all the strife between them. So I just want to take a second to, to acknowledge you guys. Um, and trust me, this sermon is not going to be about fathers and how you need to do a better job or uh, railing against you as so often is the case. Uh, with some Father's Day sermons. No, together we're just going to study the Word, um, and we're going to talk more about brothers than we are about fathers. So, my hope is in this story that we see it with fresh eyes, and that we hear it with fresh ears. And the reason is, is that this is a story that so often we skip over. I know I'm convicted of this, but I think sometimes I look at these stories and I think, okay, cool, I know Jacob, great, let's get on to Joseph, great, let's get on to, to whatever. And we skip through these stories or we breeze through them, we read over them. But yet, Jacob is such an interesting character because we sing that our God is the God of Jacob. We sing and we hear in, in the rest of Scripture that God is the God of Jacob. His name is brought up many, many times, and I've always wondered that as we've been looking at his character if, if God doesn't necessarily 
you know, if, if you just understand Jacob as being a trickster, if you understand Jacob as being the one who cheats and steals and lies and has four wives and all of these things, then we kind of wonder why on earth would we ascribe this title to God? Why would we call God the God of Jacob? And sometimes I think we can have the opposite effect where we hear, okay, he's the God of Jacob, and we think, well, this Jacob character, maybe we saw him on the flannel graphs growing up. Maybe we heard some of these stories about how he wrestled with God, about how he prays to God. And sometimes we can almost even get the opposite effect and think that he is almost larger than life, that he is beyond us. Maybe we feel like whenever he prays, this light shines upon him when he is on his knees or how he wrestles with God. And maybe we feel like we don't measure up to that. Or we forget all of the bad parts of his life and focus only on the grace that God has given him. And what I want you to see as we study all of Scripture, that the Bible is not a book of cleaned up mythical people. The Bible is a book of real human people. People who are just as broken and messed up as any of us. Sometimes we can read these stories and think that it was Abraham who was so great. It was Isaac who was amazing. It was Jacob who earned God's grace and God's favor. And yet, what we need to remember as we study this is that the best things about Jacob have nothing to do with Jacob. The absolute best things about Jacob have nothing to do with him, but with the God he serves So as we come to this story, we're reaching the climax that has been building ever since Jacob left his hometown and went to the land of his fathers. We're thinking as we go through this, we have a lot of questions. Like, we're wondering, okay, is Jacob any different in these last couple of decades? Is Esau still fuming over the loss of his birthright and blessing? We're wondering also if even last week, if Jacob's gifts did anything to actually appease his brother. So with those questions in mind, let's jump into the story. We're going to be in Genesis 33, so take out your copy of God's Word, whether it be in paper or digital, or the few of you who have the entire thing memorized, just pull it up in your head. I get a laugh from the guy who probably has it memorized right now. Genesis 33, we're going to be starting with the first verse. Let's read in God's Word together. It says, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, then Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Let's stop there. This entire scene is set up with fear and anxiety, isn't it? I mean, imagine this scene. Jacob knew that Esau had become incredibly wealthy. He knew that Esau had not just become a rich man, but he became a nation of people. He knew that there was a group of people who were even named for him 
who had joined in with him. And honestly, this contingent of 400 people was not even all of the men that Jacob could get with him. So, or that Esau could get with him. So I imagine that Jacob, if he was like any of us, would think, wow, he probably grabbed like the 400 biggest, strongest dudes that he could get to come up here and he is going to annihilate me. All I have is my wives, my children, some speckled and spotted sheep and goats, and that's it. And here he stands looking on the horizon, seeing 400 men with Esau standing right in the middle of them. Again, when we read this quickly, we can kind of jump apart from this or away from this and, and think, oh, well, you know, it's just Esau showing up with some of his friends. No, this looks like an act of military aggression. This looks like Esau is standing there waiting to fight Jacob, that Esau is standing there ready to enact punishment. And this situation seems insurmountable for Jacob. Think about this. He has this angry brother ahead of him with 400 men, and behind him, separated only by an agreement and a pile of rocks, is an angry father-in-law with a whole nation behind him. He is literally between a rock and a hard place here. And I imagine in this time, the words of his mother are coming to his mind when he first left, which said that, behold, this is back in Genesis 27, behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. And even though many, many years have passed, this is fresh in Jacob's mind. I guarantee the second he saw Esau, this is going to be what he is thinking. Now, as we go through the story, I want you to notice there's an interesting wordplay here, and it has to do with the word face. And when Jacob tried to appease Esau with gifts, literally it meant he wanted to appease his face. He wanted to shine, like bring a smile, literally, to his face. And later, Jacob reiterates this hope when he says that hopefully Esau will accept me. Again, he literally means to lift my face, to bring a smile to my face. And this wordplay continues on in this passage, and I want you to, to recognize it because I think it shows us just this interesting idea that gets lost when we just read it literally. But how often have we been in the same position as Jacob here? How many times have we enacted conflict with somebody or encountered conflict with somebody? Maybe it was our fault. Maybe it wasn't. But what about this fear that comes from seeing somebody that we have conflict with and not knowing if they will lift our face and accept us or punch us in the face in anger? And those of you who've experienced conflict know that this is a real, honest struggle. Now, to give you an example, I had a friend go through something very similar here. You see, this friend received a letter from another insurmountable opponent, the IRS received a letter that said that he owed a lot of money. I'm talking about $17,000. How would you react to this if the IRS sent you a letter that said you now owe something you can't pay? Well, my friend definitely reacted in fear and anxiety, did everything he possibly could to figure out what was going on, but think about this is the IRS we're talking about here. This is much scarier than 400 men and a leader. This is an entity that most people fear 
that has the power of a nation. And think about it, this is an entity that can use the full might of a nation to get what they're owed. Now, while my friend, in my friend's case, it happened to be an error that was corrected, think about what that anxiety would be like if he actually not just owed the IRS, but cheated them. Imagine the anxiety if instead of just a random letter coming in the mail, you knew for a fact that you took a bunch of money from this organization. You would probably act like Jacob here. I mean, think about it. You would maybe send, if this was me, this is what I would do, I would probably try to send a little bit of money to try to appease the IRS and just buy myself some time. Or maybe if you're like Jacob, you could split your money into two, two areas, thinking maybe, okay, if the IRS comes and gets this one, maybe this one will escape, just like Jacob separated his family into two camps. Think about this. Jacob owes Esau very similarly to if one of us were to cheat the IRS. Not only does he owe Esau money, but he deliberately defrauded him He had him sell his birthright at his weakest moment for a bowl of soup. And then later he tricks his father into receiving the blessing from Esau, literally leaving Esau with nothing. Leaving him with absolutely nothing, forcing him to leave home, to start a new nation. And now after many years, Esau has become an incredibly powerful man. He's become a nation with a whole people, the Edomites, named after him. And in Jacob's mind, he is standing there ready to collect. So as we see this scene, my question to you is, who is your Esau? Who is this foe or this situation in our lives that is seemingly insurmountable to you? I know that some of us in here are facing illness or financial burden. Maybe your Esau is relational strife, an actual person with whom you have conflict. Or maybe it's simply discontentment in your job or in your station of life. Maybe it's even struggling with that same sin year after year after year and not seeing any progress. And all of these seem completely insurmountable, don't they? They seem as daunting as a man with 400 others standing in front of us. And what we see in this passage is the same thing I believe applies to every one of us facing these situations, is that God will sometimes allow you to endure times of incredible difficulty, maybe even insurmountable difficulty, where everything seems stacked against you. And my friends, remember this. This isn't to crush you. This isn't to harm you. But perhaps this is exactly the same as it was for Jacob, where it causes you to realize how much you truly need something greater than you, how much you truly need God in this situation. This situation was completely insurmountable on his part, but not insurmountable for God. There will come a time when you recognize that you cannot do all of this on your own. My prayer for you is that you will be comforted through the words of a pastor named John Zoll, who reminds us that God's office is at the end of your rope. Remember that God's office, where he works his best work, is at the end of our rope. We see that Jacob himself had to wrestle with God all night. He had to fight physically with God. And even when he endured physical pain, 
by the disconnecting of his hip and the struggle that comes from that, we see that all of that had to do to bring all of that had to happen to bring him to the end of his rope. And now notice how Jacob has changed. No longer is he the arrogant man who could remove the stone off the well by himself. No longer is he strong in the body and yet weak in his soul. But because of what God has brought before him, he is now weak in his body, but strong in his soul. Look at this. He walks out ahead of his family. He puts them behind him where they'd be safe and walks ahead of them. This isn't the trickster that we saw before who would probably try to hide behind anything he could or try to escape any way he could, but this is a man who has changed. He bows before Esau in respect and reverence. This shows a man of humility, and honestly, I believe this shows a man who trusts his life to God. No matter how angry Esau is, no matter what Esau can do to him, it is nothing compared to the grace that God has shown him, the power of God in him. But yet, as we read on, we actually see something completely unexpected happen. So let's look in Genesis verse 4. It says, But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise with her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, what what do you mean by all this company that I met? Literally, why did you send me all these gifts? To which Jacob answers, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob replies, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Remember that wordplay that we mentioned about face. Joseph, or Jacob, was so worried that Esau would need to be appeased through gifts, would need to be appeased through bowing, would need to be treated with utmost respect if he was to have any chance of surviving the situation. And yet, we see that Esau is completely different. And not only was he appeased, was his face lifted. But Jacob actually says that it's like seeing the face of God himself. And now there's more to that that we'll see in a little bit. But first, in this passage, I want us to note, I want us to note Esau's character. I think this is amazing. Notice that Esau didn't wait for Jacob to come groveling to him, but actually ran to meet him. Now, I want to give you an idea of this, because for us, running is not a big deal. But in these days, Esau was probably an older guy, and he was probably wearing something similar to a robe. And now, I don't know about you guys, but if you tr- ever try to run in something that is like down past your ankles, it's, it's a difficult thing to do. So probably what Esau had to do was hike up his robes, probably up to his knees, and then just like sprint to get to him. Now, if you're Jacob and you don't know what's going on, you'd probably be freaked out. This giant, hairy dude 
hiking up his clothes, sprinting to you. You'd probably think he had gone crazy. It's a very undignified thing. Because if you're Esau in this case and you want to be intimidating, there is no way you would show your legs and sprint towards your brother. I guarantee if you wanted to be dignified, you would leave that there. You would stand there with your arms crossed with your 400 guys behind you. You'd wait for him to come to you. You'd maybe laugh at him bowing. You'd maybe, you know, look at your, look at your friends and figure out who was going to do what. But no, what he did is he humble. I mean, it's, it's this crazy thing. He goes so undignified and, and lifts up his, his outfit. I mean, actually, the term to gird up your loins comes from this. Whenever you see in Scripture to, like, gird your loins to prepare yourself, it actually means literally to, like, hike up your robes and then, like, tuck them into your belt so that you can move more freely. You can run. And then this is the crazy part. Esau takes those hairy arms of his and he wraps them around Jacob. And if you're Jacob, you're probably freaking out thinking, okay, he's just going to kill me. He's just going to take care of this himself. But what we see is that he wraps his arms around him not to strangle him, but to embrace him, to kiss him, to weep with him. My friends, you're not going to get a clearer picture of grace. My friends, what Esau shows us is exactly the picture of how God interacts with us. And I know there are some of us in here who think that God is a lot like Esau, that we have defrauded him, we have cheated him, we have sinned against him, and he is standing there with his host of armies waiting for us to either come groveling to him so he can judge us, or we are waiting for him to finally get fed up with us and then that lightning bolt's going to come down. Or that tragedy is going to strike. But my friends, that is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is waiting not for us to get to Him, but for us to turn so He can run to us. So that He could be the one who carries the shame and the undignified nature, not through hiking up His robes, but by coming down to this earth as a servant and dying in your place. This is the God we serve, not one who expects us to come to Him so He can judge us. He expects us to come to Him so He can embrace us, so He can love us. He can put His arms around us. We know that we have wronged God in our sin, and it pains us. But God isn't waiting for us to send Him gifts to appease Him. He is not waiting for us to sacrifice enough so that we earn His favor. He is waiting to embrace us and run to us. God, like Esau, tackles us with grace. My friends, if you've never heard this before, know that that's the God of the Bible. I, I can't believe how some, and I have fallen into this, how easy it is for us to feel like God is like Esau. Or God is like how Jacob sees Esau. Whether it's explicitly taught or implicitly caught, so many of us believe that God is waiting to judge us and He's not. My friends, God judged Christ. All of His wrath went upon Jesus on that cross, and He stands ready to embrace you, to put all of your sin and all of your junk on Jesus on the cross and give you all of His righteousness, all of His perfect life as a gift. 
And many times he doesn't even wait for us to run to him. He runs to us. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing to see this. Now second, I love this. Esau didn't want Jacob's stuff. I think this is so amazing to see because like earlier we think that, Je- that Esau might be a greedy man. That he would take whatever he could get because he had been wronged by Jacob. And now Jacob is offering him things and he doesn't want them. But what he really truly wants is he wants his brother. Look at this. How does Jacob refer to himself here? He calls himself your servant. How does he refer to Esau? He calls him his Lord. And what I love seeing here, and I don't know why, it it fires me up, it chokes me up a little bit because what Esau refers to Jacob as is not as his servant. He doesn't refer to him the way a Lord would. He calls him his brother. He always says, my brother. And this reveals so much about how God interacts with us. Think about this. How often do we act as mere servants of God? How often do we feel as though our work and our sacrifice is to appease Him, to be a good hired servant? Thinking that maybe we are simply in His employ, but and maybe with grumbling we do what is expected of us, or even some of us out of fear Stay obedient to this God. But my friends, what you need to know is that you're not a servant of God. God doesn't want a servant. He doesn't want to hire you. He wants to adopt you. He wants to treat you with the same words, not as my servant or as, you know, this overlord to you. He wants to call you my child. My child. My friends, you are not a mere servant of God. If you are in His family, if you have accepted Christ, if you have experienced His saving grace, you are not just a servant. You are His adopted son or daughter. Yes, we serve God, but not as a hired hand, but as an obedient child of the Most High. It isn't out of fear that we work for God, but it's because of His great love for us. My friends, we don't obey God to earn His favor. We obey because we already have it. We do these things because God loves us so much, it's impossible for us not to respond in loving adoration and obedience to Him. I do not believe, I do not see this in Scripture, that Jacob's work and his gifts are what changed Esau's heart. If they were, then Esau wouldn't want to get them back. What we see is that God had already changed his heart toward his brother. And we see that he changed his heart so that everyone who reads this story would just get a glimpse, a small taste of the grace that God has waiting for each of us. No matter what you have done to this God, no matter how you have sinned, no matter how you sin presently, no matter how you will sin, God treats you like His child. God treats you 
like his adopted son or daughter. God doesn't need your effort or your stuff. He just wants his kid. He wants his child. He wants to adopt you into his family. And not just that, but make you a co-heir with Christ himself. God doesn't need your stuff or your sacrifice. He wants you. And he calls you his child. This is amazing to think about. If that doesn't get us fired up, I don't know what will. It's amazing to see a God like this in a story that so many of us jump ahead, skip to get to the story of Joseph. We see the clearest, one of the clearest examples of God's grace in the whole Bible. But now as we go on, we're going to see kind of an interesting shift. And we're going to see something that I find interesting and I want to dive into a little bit. We're starting in verse 12 as we continue the story. Esau said, after this embracing, probably after he wiped his face, probably lowered down his robes, again, tried to be a little bit more dignified, even though he's beaming with pride that he and his brother have been reunited. He says, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they're driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. So let my Lord pass on ahead of me, pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock, <clears throat> excuse me, and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. And so Esau said, let me leave with you some of my people who are with me. But Jacob said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built for himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Life, livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely into the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Haram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. And there he erected an altar and called it El Eloha Israel. For those of you who look in your notes, that means literally God, the God of Israel. Now, reading through this part of the story, I always wondered why didn't Jacob go with Esau? What happened here? Why on earth didn't they join together? And it's been fun to read through the different responses. A lot of people have just really interesting things about this. I've heard some say, I don't know, I don't agree with this, but I've heard some say that Jacob was simply skeptical of Esau's change in heart and was thinking that Esau just wanted to bring him into his land so he could just punish him there. But, I mean, the reason that they say this, they note that Jacob goes through Sukkoth to Shechem instead of to Seir and thinks that Jacob doesn't fully trust Esau, he has no intention of following him there. And the reason that they say this is because he actually goes in a completely different direction. Um, he doesn't do, I mean, he lies to his brother here. And to get to Sayer, they would have to go about 100 miles south. 
and to get to the northern border, where Jacob actually goes about four miles west to get to Sukkoth, and then travel through Shechem there. But the, the problem I have with this is that there's nothing in this to indicate that Esau's words were anything but genuine. If anything, because of how clearly that this story parallels the gospel, there's absolutely no reason to think that Esau was somehow being tricky or that he was the one who was tricking Jacob here. I don't see any of that in in the Word. I don't see anything less than genuine love and forgiveness on Esau's part. So, I think it's interesting to think that all of a sudden there's this switch. Now, I've seen some think that this is Jacob's old nature creeping up. Again, I don't really feel like that's the case. Um, for him to lie to Esau so he can just go and do his own thing. Now, that's entirely in line with Jacob's old character, but this is completely different than the Jacob we see in this passage after wrestling with God all through the night. So, I disagree with that. So, the way I see it, the way I see this is that Jacob is actually doing something good. Jacob is actually resisting the temptation of a comfortable life in order to do what God has called him to do. Now, think about this. Where did Esau live? He lived in Edom, which was not the land of his fathers. It was near that land, but he had left, and he took wives from other cultures. He even took an Ishmaelite as his wife. He took wives from the surrounding areas. And though he shows us God used him in an incredible way, which I find so great that God can even use someone who is far from him, a a pagan really, to demonstrate grace, Esau is not walking with God. And Esau has all of the creature comforts that any of us could ever want. He was wealthy. He had numerous servants. He had all of the food he could ever want and lived in a great place and invited Jacob to come with him. But Jacob remembered the promise that God gave to Abraham and his offspring. And it wasn't that you will enter into the land of Edom and dwell with your brother. It was that you will enter into the land of Canaan that I will show you. And we see here that the city of Shechem is in the land of Canaan. Jacob could have had this incredible, wonderful life protected by his brother and all of his military might. His children would have probably gone you know, gotten great educations. I mean, it was just this great place, but I believe truly that Jacob is showing us something that we really need to hear is that sometimes to do what God asks us to do means going away from comfort, going away from our comfortable life. And as we'll see next week in the next chapter, this path was not an easy one that Jacob took, but it was the one that God gave him it was, he took this path from a sincere trust in God rather than a desire for comfort. And I don't know about you guys, but this kind of hits home for me. I wonder how many times I have chosen comfort over what God has asked me to do. And if we're honest, all of us have wrestled with this at one point or another. Every single one of us has felt this way where there have been decisions that you faced where one says, God is calling you to do something radical do something amazing, and yet God has also given you the chance to be comfortable. Has God ever called you to do something difficult and dangerous that you would have to leave your comfort to do? And I know that some of you maybe have wrestled with this and have gone out in faith. I've heard incredible stories of people who have denied comfort, 
who have denied even, you know, their staying with their family, staying with their job, whatever it is, to go into something that God is calling them to do and have heard amazing stories of God moving in these miraculous ways. And some of you may feel like right now that God is calling you to move out of your comfort zone. And I remember seeing this video once where a lady is sitting in a, in a chair and this guy representing God comes up to her and says that, you know, hey, like, you should, you should get up and, and go outside. There's somebody out there that doesn't know me. I want you to go and, and talk to them. And she goes, no, that, that makes me uncomfortable. And then later he comes up and says, there's, there's somebody right outside here. Like, they need a drink of water. He hands her a bottle of water and she said, ah, that, that makes me uncomfortable. I don't, I don't want to do that. And then again, he comes to her a third time and says, I'll even bring this person to you. You can stay in your chair and have a conversation with them. She said, ah, that, that, that makes me uncomfortable. I don't like being uncomfortable. And what God, the person playing God says to her, he says, the problem is not that you're uncomfortable, it's that you're too comfortable. The problem is not that this makes you uncomfortable, it's that you're too comfortable now. And I wonder how many of us, even now, someone is coming to your mind that is standing right outside that is waiting to hear this message that we proclaim. And we fear being awkward or we fear being labeled and that keeps us from doing a crazy thing like inviting a neighbor to our house. Not to proselytize and get them to convert, but just to get to know them. Or maybe it takes a lot of strain and brings us out of our comfort zone to, in the conversation that all of us have with our favorite barista, to ask where she goes to church or if she goes to church. I'll be convicted. I'm totally convicted on this. I'm a pastor and I don't know where my favorite barista goes to church. But my friends, whatever it is, I mean, even something huge, maybe God is even calling you right now to take a week off of work and go serve somewhere. Or maybe he's asking you to bring water to people who don't have it overseas. I mean, whatever it is, my friends, I think we can learn from Jacob here when we see that comfort isn't always the best option. That sometimes we need to remember that fear and that anxiety is not a tool of God to keep us comfortable, but it's a tool of the enemy to keep us from doing what is against him. To keep us from living out what God has called us to do. Jesus tells us to go into the nations, to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to bring His Word to all people. And while this makes us uncomfortable, my friends, this is something that has eternal implications. And my hope, my sincere hope, they always say, that before a person gets up to preach, that sermon should convict them more than it convicts everyone else. And I have been convicted by this. And I hope that you will join me in asking those people in our daily lives. Don't, you don't even have to go out of your way. You don't have to go on a street corner and preach. If God's calling you to do that, by all means do it. But think about the people right now that you know who are far from God. I hope I hope that you know people who aren't Christians. And if you don't, find ways to meet them. They're out there. Find ways that you can get out of your comfort zone 
maybe even out of your county or even out of your country, to bring the good news of Christ to people who need it. It's amazing how much depth there is in this story. I love this story. And I'll be convicted in the sense, I'll share this with you guys, I've skipped over the story so many times, it's like, okay, cool, Jacob and Esau, they get back together, sweet, all right, let's go talk about Joseph, or honestly, because I'm like this, let's just skip to the New Testament. I like the New Testament. And it's funny because this happens a lot. As I was preparing for this, for this sermon, I, I like to search and see like how other pastors take things or read different commentaries and things like that. I couldn't find one sermon on Genesis 33. And I searched everywhere. Most people stop after the table of nations in chapter 11. Some do that. And for some reason, this hasn't been spoken. And my hope is that even if you're slightly familiar with this story, you will notice that really the only other story in Scripture that is as clear of a presentation of the gospel and how God interacts with his people is found in Luke 15. It's the story of the prodigal son. If you read these two, read, seriously, do this this week. Please, do this this week. Read chapter 33 in Genesis and then read Luke chapter 15. It is amazing to me how God gives us this glimpse into his grace only 33 chapters into the Bible. They're strikingly similar. It's amazing to see. So in a story that many of us were maybe slightly familiar with, we've seen more about God's character than in so many other stories. We've seen God take a proud man like Jacob who was strong in body but weak in soul and flip those around. There's some of us in here who need that, who are strong in the body and weak in the soul and need God to strengthen our souls, possibly, I don't know, but possibly through the weakening of other things, through the weakening of our pride, through the weakening of our sense of self-accomplishment. But my friends, whatever it is, allow God to weaken it so that He can strengthen your soul. We've even seen how God can use somebody who is far from Him to be an outlet of His incredible grace We've seen how this changed man responds to this grace and yet also recognizes God isn't done with him yet. And he journeys away from what would be comfortable and what God has called him to do. My friends, as we close, I want you to hear this. I am sure there's some of you in here who sympathize with Jacob in the first few verses of this chapter who feel like you need to appease God who feel like you need to lift his face, who, if you imagine God right now, he's not smiling. Maybe he is frowning at you. Maybe he is judging. But my friends, God's face is lifted. His face has been appeased, not through your effort, but through the work of Christ on the cross. And all God wants to do is to embrace you and to lift your face. Run to Him. If you're afraid that if you go to God, He will make you a servant and you won't be able to enjoy maybe the freedoms that you have, remember the words of Paul in the New Testament where he says it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And the freedom that comes from being a child of God is greater than any other freedom than you can possibly imagine on this earth. 
We are not mere servants. We are adopted children. God doesn't want to hire you. He wants His daughter back. He wants His son back. My friends, I, I implore you, I entreat you to embrace God's undeserved, unmerited grace, maybe for the first time or for the thousandth time. If you guys have any questions or you want to, someone to pray with, I'm going to be around. I would love to share more about this with you. But now I'd like to invite you to pray with me as we thank God for this incredible gift that He has given us. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, such grace, such favor is almost too good for us. God, it is too sweet for our lips. It is too powerful for us to comprehend. And God, that is why we need it. God, we praise you for this unmerited, unearned grace that you offer. That, Lord, we cannot do it on our own. Break us of the feeling that we can. God, break me of this desire to do things on my own, and may I run to you. God, for my friends here who maybe have never seen you this way, I pray that they would get the picture of you as a God of grace, not as a God of condemnation and judgment. Now, Father, even in the Old Testament, early in the book that you have so graciously given us, we see a clear example of your grace and how you respond to us. God, I pray for my friends here who don't know you yet, who are far from you, that they would hear your word and your grace and they would embrace it as you embrace them. And Father, for those of us who have been Christians for many years, may we run to you and embrace this grace again and again. Praise you, God, in the name of Christ that you are gracious. We praise you and we thank you, Lord. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Stephen's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.